I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to look at 15 verses, a lot there, so we must hasten, and you'll need a Bible to follow along. These brothers have some Bibles, so get their attention if you need one as they make their way back. And it's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 3. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. Ecclesiastes 3. When South African pastor Andrew Murray was visiting England in 1895, he began to suffer pain from a previous back injury. And while he was recuperating, his hostess told him of a woman who was in great trouble and she wanted to know if he had any counsel for her. Murray said, give her this paper, which I've been writing for my own encouragement. It may be that she will find it helpful. This is what Murray wrote in that note. In time of trouble, say first, God brought me here. It is by his will I am in this place. In that I will rest. Next, he will keep me in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn And working in me the grace he means me to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. So I ask you, as I ask myself, do you believe in the timeliness of God? Not just for the world in general and not just for other people, but for your own life in particular. Do you trust his timing for the seasons of your own life? We sometimes think that God was too late or God was too early with whatever it is that we're going through. But when we look back, we discover that his agenda was better than ours. Because a door was closed when we wanted it open... We ended up going a different direction, which turned out to be a better direction all along sometimes. We were not ready for that relationship that we wanted when we wanted it, but only later. Something happened to change our schedule, and we ended up having an unexpected conversation that changed our whole direction in life or maybe changed someone else's. Sometimes being in the right place in God's time instead of at the wrong place on our own schedule, can even save your life. Philip Riken is the president of Wheaton College. That's a Christian college in Wheaton, Illinois. He tells the story of a group of students from the college who were frustrated one morning when their sightseeing in London was delayed by a slow service at breakfast. They thought they were running late, but when they walked up to their subway station, they discovered that they had just missed an underground explosion. Reichen also tells of a friend of his who was supposed to be at the top of the World Trade Center on 9-11, but a double booking forced his company to relocate their meetings. God's timing is perfect, even when we're not spared from the trial, even death. Remember this. The Bible tells us that Jesus was born, quote, when the fullness of time had come. And he came with the intention of going through suffering and trial and, yes, dying. 
And he died, the Bible tells us, at, quote, just the right time. But whether or not you can rest in the comfort of God's loving control over his world, including the world that you and I inhabit in our own circumstances, that all depends on your perspective. And that perspective is determined by your relationship with him and whether or not you have come to trust him. Today, as we continue in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that your perspective determines your well-being. Let's ask God to help us as we look at God's word together. Father, thank you for bringing us to this place on the Lord's day. This, like all things, is in your timing. This is an appointment that we have with you. We ask you, Lord, to help us to then cooperate in the ends that you have for this time together. That we might be changed and therefore come to this with open hearts and attentive minds. And so that we might leave this place better able and better desiring to reflect you in your world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have an outline for the message inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out. And you'll see that, first of all, we say that all of life is under God's control. All of life is under God's control. And I say that because of the first verse in Ecclesiastes 3. Verse 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Literally, the first phrase of verse 1 says, there is an appointed time for everything. And the one who appoints everything is God. Although God is not mentioned specifically in this verse, he is later on in our passage. And the phrase under the heavens points to him as the one who makes the appointments. If you've been with us for this series, you know that in the first two chapters, We've seen that Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, is looking at life mostly from what he calls under the sun. But here, for the first time, it's under the heavens. And in chapter 5 and verse 2, we're told God is in heaven. So there's an appointed time for everything with those appointments made by the ultimate planner, God himself. So one commentator says, God is the king of time. He regulates our minutes and our seconds. He rules all our moments and all our days. Nothing happens in life without his superintendence. Everything happens when it happens because God is sovereign over time as well as over eternity. Furthermore, there's a definite orderliness to the way God does things. He is a precise God, absolute in his authority over space and time. He puts everything in its own time and place. God's sovereignty has a chronology. This has been true from the very beginning of time when God divided the days of creation. We see it with the very change of season, the turning of summer into autumn, the coming of springtime after winter. The rhythms of creation testify to the orderliness of their creator. And so God said to Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And in Ecclesiastes 3, we see the same sovereign order applied to human activities and relationships. Solomon says, For everything there is a season, 
not just the four seasons, but for everything that happens under heaven, Solomon tells us. And a season, in this sense, is a fixed time. It's a predetermined purpose. The standard Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament that we're looking at. It was originally written in Hebrew, but then sometime later there was a Greek translation uh, from the, the Hebrew. And the standard Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the Greek word kairos. That's time as viewed as opportunity for this passage, rather than another Greek term for time, chronos, which is time considered as duration. In God's outworking of his plan, there's a suitable occasion or there's an appropriate opportunity for everything that happens. There's a fitness to all that happens. Though, of course, that fitness and that purpose may not be always apparent in our circumstances. According to one old commentator from the 19th century, so it's got some of that 1800s language in it, This is the wise and regular and orderly administration of one who sees the end from the beginning and to whom there is no unanticipated contingency and whose omniscient eye in the midst of what appears to us inextricable confusion has a thorough and intuitive perception of the endlessly diversified relations and tendencies of all events and all their circumstances, discerning throughout the whole the perfection of harmony. Now, to put that very simply, God does everything at just the right time. All of life is under God's control. And I say in your outline that control is, first of all, active. It is active. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, if these words sound familiar to you, it's either because you've read the Bible or because you were tutored under those great theologians, the birds, who recorded Pete Seeger's plagiarizing of Solomon with their number one hit in 1965, Turn, 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 which says to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. And then it goes on, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, and so on. The activities that are listed in these seven verses describe a full range of human experience. But behind all of these is what God is doing. In fact, the verbs that are used in this passage are all acts of God before they become human activities. These are all things God does. Because God does them, people do them. For example, God said to the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said to me, 
You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. You see, Jeremiah, because I first see and I cause you to see. God is active in all that comes to pass. But God uses secondary causes to accomplish those purposes. He uses the events of human history. He uses humanity in order to accomplish his own own ends. Now, if you're awake and you're thinking about it, then you might be wondering, well, what about all the bad stuff then? What about the evil that happens? The Bible is very clear that God does not do evil. For he has no capacity for evil within himself, but he does use evil people for ultimate good. And you see this in several places in Scripture where God allows people to go their sinful direction. And that direction that they have chosen fulfills his purpose. I'm going to give you some examples of that. God determined to punish the nation Judah for its disobedience to him. And he used Babylon, wicked Babylon, to accomplish it. Habakkuk chapter 1. God said, I am raising up the Babylonians. They come intent on violence. God raises them up to judge the nation of Judah. But then God turns right around and pronounces judgment on Babylon for its wickedness. In chapter 2 of Habakkuk, because you, Babylon, have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. Babylon is one example of God using the evil intent of others to accomplish his good purpose. The Bible says of Pharaoh, both that he hardened his own heart, but then it also says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the story of Joseph, we see God's intention behind the evil schemes of Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery and they assumed he was dead. But at the end of that story, Joseph says this to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And of course, we see this dynamic very vividly in the unjust death of Jesus, which was nevertheless in the eternal plan of God. In prophesying of the one who would come, the prophet Isaiah said this, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. As the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, it was the Lord's will for this to happen. And yet those who carried out the murder of Jesus are guilty. Acts chapter 2, Peter said, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So how are we to understand the relationship between God's deliberate plan for all that happens, God controlling everything that takes place, and yet evil people being responsible for the sin that they commit? Well, hear this. People always do what they desire. And a sovereign God puts them in position to carry out what they're already inclined to do. In effect, God gives them enough rope to hang themselves. He knows what sinful hearts will do if left to themselves, and he puts people in position, unless he intervenes, to do it. We always do what we want. And God uses that, even the evil things we want, to accomplish ultimately what he wants. He did it with the Babylonians. He did it with Pharaoh, with Joseph's brothers. And he did it with Jesus' executioners. 
He allows us to pursue the desires of our hearts. But he puts us in position so that what we choose accomplishes his purposes. It's our choice. And yet it fulfills God's plan. And if God does not intervene by changing our desires, hear this, friends, we would all go in that sinful direction. We see the relationship between God's sovereign control and the choices of people in an illustration that I've given to you before. There was an elderly Christian woman who was destitute of food. And she would, whenever in need, she would go out to her window at her upper story apartment and she would cry out to God, Lord, please supply for your servant. And she did this day after day. And there were some teenage boys, smart aleck teenage boys who heard her doing this. And they said, hey, let's let's play a trick on that old lady. So they bought some food. They went up to her apartment. They left it at the door. They knocked and they ran away. She came to the door. She saw the food. She immediately went to the window and she began to praise God for supplying her need. And the boys yelled up at her and said, you crazy old lady. God didn't give you that. We did. And she replied back to them. The devil may have brought it, but the Lord sent it. And you know, friends, that's often the way it is. God uses the evil designs of others, but a God who is in control of all things uses them for his good ends. All of life is under God's control, and that control is active, though using secondary means. But I say in your outline as well, it's active and it's comprehensive. In verses 2 through 8, there are 14 pairs given, and each of the pairs is what's called a merism. That's a figure of speech in which two items make up the whole. We see an example of this in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth are a merism, two items for everything. In the beginning, God created everything. And each of those then 14 pairs here comprise a larger whole. So, for instance, together, birth and death comprise the whole of human existence. And weeping and laughing summarize the full range of human emotion. These 14 pairs take in the entire sweep of human experience, starting with birth and death and ending with war and peace and then everything in between. Each activity in these verses has its opposite. And together, both of them, you notice there's an an opposite. There's a good thing and then there's a bad thing. But both of them, the good and the bad, tell us what God does in his world. So let's survey a few of those. Birth and death in verse 2 are the two appointments that every person must keep. Both the cradle and the grave follow God's timetable. He's the one who brings life into the world. David said in Psalm 139, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. But God not only brings life into the world, he's the one who determines the time of death. Job 14, a person's days are determined. You, God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. So Martin Luther said this, you cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, nor die any sooner. The same is true of planting and harvesting. In the Bible, these are actions that are often used to describe God's relationship with his people. God planted his people as a fruitful vineyard, Isaiah says. 
He said, God dug it, cleared it, planted it, built a watchtower in it, cut a wine press as well. Speaking of God's relationship with his people. But when they turned against him in rebellion, Isaiah tells us God dug up the vine, sending the people into captivity. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. So notice in this that God does both. He does the planting, but he also does the uprooting. And likewise, there's a time for building up as well as breaking down. And God does both. God broke down the Tower of Babel that was built because of human pride. But he also built up a house for Israel and a kingdom for David. The complete work of God, friends, includes both creation and destruction. Now, that's hard for some of us. We want to think of God involved in only the pleasant aspects of life, but not things like death and uprooting and tearing down. But hear this, if you're going to know who God truly is, then we must take him for all that he is and all that he has revealed about himself in his word, not just what we imagine him to be. And what he tells us about himself Though at times that means he acts in ways that are unpleasant for us. All that he tells us about himself, all of it ultimately is all good. There's a time for him to kill as well as a time for him to heal. There's a time, for instance, for him to use people, secondary cause, to execute justice in capital punishment. God is the one who said in Genesis 9, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. But there's also a time for God to provide skilled medical care to heal. This is a part of God's perfection in his sovereign dealings with humanity. As God said in the days of Moses, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. So God, friends, is not either or. God is both and, depending on what time it is. And his timing is always perfect, and he always knows what time it is. According to God's schedule, there's a time to love and a time to hate. We like to think of God as love without considering his righteous anger. But the hatred of God is one of his perfections. It is right, and it's good for God to oppose every wicked deed and to bring evil to judgment. So Proverbs 6 says there are things the Lord hates, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes. So with God, there is a time for peace and a time for war. Until the Prince of Peace, Jesus returns, we're in wartime. That's true spiritually as we use the weapons of the word of God in prayer to fight against Satan There are also times when there is warfare in the world as righteous nations fight to protect their people and battle for justice. God makes a time for everything. Because at the right time, everything in in these verses is fully in keeping with his character. Birth and death, mourning and laughter, love and hate, exclusion and embrace, and war and peace. Now, is this... Sovereign control of God, then, a good thing or a bad thing? You may be sitting here going, you know, that makes me really uneasy. God's in control of everything? 
For you, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you find rest in that? Or do you hate it? Well, most people view it as a bad thing. That God is in control. And that's why I say in your outline. Most live under God's curse. Verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? Now, the anticipated answer is nothing. Just as it was way back in chapter 1 and verse 3 at the very beginning of the book, where it was asked, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil? Notice that phrase, under the sun. That is, people engage in all these activities in verses 2 through 8 of laughing and mourning, weeping and dancing, building up and tearing down, living and dying. And in the end, what does it all amount to? And for most people, the answer is nothing. And here's why. Verse 10. Because I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Now that burden, we're going to explain that a little more fully in a moment, but that burden goes all the way back to the beginning of human history when our first parents, Adam and Eve, who perfectly represented you and me, when they decided they needed something more than God and so they disobeyed him with many consequences following, like difficulty of work being exponentially increased in pain and childbearing. But all of that recorded in Genesis chapter 3 is because of something much larger and more devastating at the end of that portion of Scripture in Genesis 3. All of those punishments, all of those consequences are really the result of one fundamental thing. And at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says this, the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he drove them out. And placed cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God physically banished them. But this physical banishment from the presence of God symbolized the spiritual separation that they experienced the moment they sinned against God. And now all of their children, all of us come into the world separated from God. And this curse then results in what I say in your outline. It involves futility. Now, because of sin, people pursue life apart from God, or as Solomon calls it in Ecclesiastes, they pursue it just under the sun. That is, we live in an earthbound and a time-bound fashion, as if this time and our lives is all there is without reference to God. And the result of life lived only from the perspective of under the sun is meaninglessness, emptiness, futility. That's been the major theme of this book from the very beginning, going back to chapter 1 and verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless from a perspective under the sun. So all people labor and live under the curse of futility. It involves futility, but it also involves, I say in your outline, Frustration. It involves frustration. Verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, in that verse, verse 11, we're given three reasons that people see no ultimate gain as they live life just from under the sun. It says, first of all, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, 
just taken on its own out of this context. That's a, a marvelous, that's a wonderful statement. But Solomon is using it to explain why there's no ultimate gain. He's saying that God does what he does according to his timing. So that means a few things. So let me give you these three. They're not in your outline. But one is it means we don't control life circumstances. God is the one who makes it all happen. We cannot control the circumstances of life. Life is frustrating. It's perplexing because we cannot control it. And here God is said to make all things beautiful because he does it in his time and in his way. The verse teaches that God creates beauty out of ugliness. And he does this in everything. And he does it according to his timing and not ours. In Hebrew, the word everything stands at the beginning of this sentence. Everything is made beautiful in its own time. That is, nothing is beyond the control of God. And ultimately, everything is outside the control of us. One preacher said this, We tend to focus on the drab cocoon of life without realizing that on the inside, God is making a butterfly. We look at the wrapping rather than the gift inside. We think that if the circumstance does not produce immediate gratification and comfort and satisfaction, then it's of no value. If I can't see what's in it for me right now, then it must be bad. And the fact that we do not see the beauty of what God is doing, friends, does not change the fact that God is absolutely at work. He makes all things beautiful according to his purposes. We do not control the circumstances, but he does. And the second reason that people see no ultimate gain and they're frustrated then living under this curse of life apart from God, under the sun, is that we naturally, as humanity made in the image of God, we naturally have a sense of what's eternal, but we're bound to the here and now. And that creates a frustration. Verse 11 says he has set eternity in the human heart. As part of the image of God and man, we recognize there must be something more. We were made for that something more. But sin has separated us from the one who is that something more. We seek for significance in life, but when we are bound to the here and now, we see no meaning. So people are compelled by their nature because they have eternity in their hearts. They are compelled by their nature to search for something beyond themselves. But because of sin, hear this, we've lost, we forfeited the ability to recognize that one. So it creates this frustration. I'm made for this, but I can't see it. I can't see it because of the blindness that sin creates. We still have, after Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve, everyone comes into the world, yes, under the curse of sin, but still with the image of God marred but not erased. And so we still have the worship impulse, the impulse to be in relationship with the one who made us. But since that impulse because of sin is not channeled toward the true and living God, then we manufacture God's small g in our lives. And that's the frustration of living life under the sun, under the curse. Verse 11 goes on to say that we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So the third reason that life under the sun is frustrating. Because people cannot see the entire plan of God. People view life as meaningless and without hope because they're not connected to an infinite God. 
They don't know the God who can see all of history and what he is doing and guarantee that though we can't see it all, he's working to bring it all to a grand climax that will result in his glory and our good. So, friends, all things are under God's control. But most people live under God's curse. But thirdly, in your outline, Christians live under God's comfort. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does, and then he goes on to describe what it is that God does that we'll see in a moment. Now, in these verses, two times, in verse 12 and verse 14, Solomon says, I know. And the first one introduces the conclusion of all of this. And I have it in your outline. That we can have pleasure in life. Solomon concludes that it is possible, because there is this gift of God... And if we are able to free ourselves from the confinement of life only under the sun, and now God is the major player in life, we can have pleasure in life. He says we should enjoy life. He says that you can recognize there's a puzzle and that you can't fit it all together, but you can rejoice in knowing, in knowing that God is at work. The world takes a blind approach to life that says, don't worry, be happy. But there's no blind faith here. When we can't see ahead, we can rest in the fact that we know God. We can approach life, though it is confusing, and we can say, I don't know what God's doing, but I know that he is prom- what he has promised, and I know that it is good. Now, the reason for that conclusion, that we can enjoy life, if God is the major player and not confined under the sun, the reason for that's given in verses 14 and 15. And it's the second thing that Solomon says he knows. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. You see, friends, we can have this comfort. Because we know God. I say that lastly in your outline. We can have this comfort. Because we know God. And verse 14 and verse 15 give us four things that we know about God. The first is we know that what he does lasts. Our plans and our accomplishments fade and crumble. But what God does is eternal. Solomon says it endures forever. And second, we know that what he does is complete. Verse 14 says nothing can be added, nothing can be taken. One of these days we will die. And what we do here will be left unfinished. But friends, what God does is complete. It lacks nothing. Nothing can be added, nothing can be taken away. History, all of the events of time are marching toward a grand conclusion when all that has been will work together to bring glory to God. This tells us a third thing that we know that allows us then to have this joy in life. We know that what God does is purposeful. Verse 14 says God does it for a purpose. 
Everything that he does, he does so that men, humanity, will fear him. God is at work to make himself known among humanity and to exalt his name among them. We are often aimless, but God is at work with an absolute aim, and it's always to bring glory to himself, the accomplishment of his will. God makes himself known in a variety of ways. And through those ways and his control over our circumstances, he brings us into reverent fear of him through a variety of means, sometimes even through trials and through sorrow. You see, friends, the greatest good in life is not our comfort. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us through our pain. And God uses pleasure and pain and everything else to accomplish his ends. So we know some things about God, and that's the reason that we can have a radically different perspective and a radically different experience of life. We know that what he does is lasting, it's complete, it's full of purpose. And we know, lastly, that what God does is always right. It's always just. Verse 15. Whatever is, has already been, and what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. Now, that can be a comfort or that can be something that scares you. But the truth is, though we forget what happens, God doesn't forget anything. And because God is just, because God is right in all of his dealings with humanity, he will reward as well as punish for what people do. The point of this verse is that people do not learn from history. We just march blindly on. But God will call the past to account. And in Hebrew, this expression literally says God seeks what hurries along. The idea is that time and our activities in time go by very quickly. It gets away from us. We blink and it's gone. And we forget that God keeps track. There's not a moment in all of history in anyone's life that is lost. And in the end, it will all be called to account. And because that's true then, life can be meaningful From that perspective, looking at it from above the sun, because God's the major player. So friends, sometimes we wish we could change God. But you see, God will not change. He's immutable. And it is not God who needs to change, but us and our perspective on him and what he is doing. We're often like the man who was climbing up a steep mountain on his way to the summit when he started to slip. Unable to stop himself, he slid back down this treacherous incline toward a cliff that plunged a thousand feet to the canyon floor. He was sure he was going to be killed. But just as he was about to go over the edge, he threw his hands out and he managed to catch a small branch. There he hung. He had saved himself, but he couldn't get back onto the incline and he knew it was just a matter of time until his grip loosened and he fell. This guy was not a religious man, but this was obviously the time to become religious if ever. So he looks up to heaven and he calls out, is there anyone up there who can help me? He didn't expect an answer. And so he was greatly surprised when a deep voice came back. Yes, I am here and I can help you. But first, you're going to have to let go of that branch. After a long pause, the man looked up and he called out again. Is there anybody else up there who can help me? (laughs) 
You see, but there's one who can help you, one and only one. And he doesn't change. And more importantly, he need not change for anybody. It's we who need to change to conform to his character and his timing, for he makes all things beautiful in his own time. And because that is true, friends, your take-home truth, is that Christians see life as under the loving control of the God we love. The question for you and for me is this. Do you love the God who is in loving control of his world? And in the midst of your varied circumstances, do you have a relationship with him so that you see that life from his perspective and know and trust that he is doing something for his glory and for your good? The only way that happens is if you have a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. But undoubtedly in a crowd like this, there are some who came into this room who do not know God through Jesus. Those of you that do and you are overburdened with what's going on in your life as we bow, thank God for what he's doing. Thank him not only for everything the Bible says, but in everything. Because of what you know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Thank him. Those of you who don't know him, I encourage you to take this opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ is the only answer to your separation from God in the perfect life that he lived and the death he died on the cross. He offers that to you. You receive that and you repent. Repent in the Bible means I'm going to go your way, God, not my way. And so when we bow from your heart to God in your own words, you tell him, Lord, I believe I'm a sinner. I've been living a life from under the sun. I've been doing all that I do only for my own glory and looking for my own comfort in life, not looking at it from your perspective. So I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to take my life and redirect it. I'm going to go your way, not my way. I want to bring glory to you in my life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And to see their words of wisdom from your servant Solomon. Thank you, Lord, for telling us about life as it really is. And about us as we really are. And then showing us you as you truly are. In all of the aspects of your character. Oh, Lord, help us to resist the temptation of molding you into our own image. You are the creator. You are the true and living God. You have made us for yourself and in your image, not the other way around. So help us, Lord, to not only accept who you are, not a resignation to who you are, but to delight in who you are. Because you have shown us that in the midst of all the perplexity, in the midst of all of the difficulty, you do make all things beautiful in your time and in your way. And you have shown us that most profoundly in what you did in the person and work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, although we don't know why things happen when they do, as they do, we trust, we know that you do. And further, we trust your good heart. And how could we but trust your good heart when we see what you have done on our behalf in the person and work of the Lord Jesus? So as people who have a relationship with you through him, may that apply to every circumstance of our life, the things that we're going through today, the things we may encounter next week. I pray, oh God, That in this sacred moment, you would draw some out of the world into yourself. 
so that they are seeing that they have been going their own way and it's why they're living in futility and frustration. They were made for someone more. Oh Lord, draw them to yourself. May they turn to you so that their lips and lives bring glory to the one who deserves it and whose name we pray, amen.